The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our full uh, interview and podcast is with Michelle Myers. Uh, she is the deputy economist for North America uh, for Bank of America Merrill Lynch. She really is a very interesting person. Uh, it's rare these days to find someone who is as accomplished as she is at such a young age, she's in her 30s, and she has a role at a what effectively is one of the biggest investment firms in the world. Um, I know her for a few years through mutual friends. I think I might have first met her through Dave Rosenberg and a few other folks who are either economists or researchers. Um, she's actually a delightful person and really, really knowledgeable about things. I think she brings a very, very fundamental approach to economics. She's a bit of a data wonk, uh, really interesting background, uh, double uh, degree, master's and bachelor's in four years from Boston University, which is really uh, very, very impressive to do that. She is an expert on both the housing market, which she's covered for many years, as well as the labor market. And, and those are two um, terrific qualifications to have if you're an economist covering the United States uh, in the post-credit crisis era. Her, her background is simply she came out of school and went right to Lehman Brothers. She was there right in the middle of the crisis. I wish we had more time to discuss that with her, but she described it. It was really quite fascinating uh, what it was like to be in the eye of the hurricane during that, that collapse. Um, stayed on at Barclays when they took over Lehman Brothers post-bankruptcy and her former boss, Ethan Harris at Lehman Brothers, ended up taking over the uh, lead economist role at Merrill Lynch and uh, ultimately ended up recruiting her to join him at Merrill. And so he's been at that position. She's been at that position at Merrill Lynch now for about five years. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Michelle Myers of Merrill Lynch. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Michelle Meyer. She is the Deputy Head of Economics for Merrill Lynch for the United States. Let me give you a little background about Michelle. Um, undergraduate, Boston uh, University. You did a joint BAMA program, is that right? I did. In um, four years. In four years. So I started taking my graduate coursework my junior year of undergrad, so you can imagine how exciting my social life was my junior year. And it was a five-year program, but I- That you did it in four. I sped it up. There you go. Efficient. So zero social life. Did you- Was it- <laughs> 24 hours a day, summers, the whole deal? Just No, not... luckily I didn't have to uh, have school in the summer because I had a lot of credits heading in, so I would have been able to graduate undergrad in three years. So, yeah. so let me give people a little background yeah. about who you are and what you do Please. for a living. You're essentially the chief econ economist for 
the United States for Merrill Lynch, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, for brokerage Bank firms. Bank of America Merrill Bank Lynch. Bank of America Merrill Lynch, that's <laughs> yes. right. I'm still stuck in the 2000s. <laughs> I have a pre-crisis uh, mindset. Mm. You were named to Forbes' list of 30 under 30 in finance. That was a couple of years that ago. a few years ago. So now you more recently were named to 35 under 35, mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um and you have a really interesting background. You were at Lehman Brothers right throughout the crisis. Mm-hmm. Then that became Barclays. Mm-hmm. And then for the past five years, you've been at Merrill. So let's talk a little bit about about your background. So you have a, a master's and a BA mm-hmm. in economics. Mm-hmm. What made you think, well, let's go to Wall Street and work <laughs> for some of the biggest names uh, – most storied names on the street. Well, who wouldn't want to do that? Um, <laughs> lots, of, lots of people think finance yeah. is a little um, squishy and they go elsewhere. No, I understand. I understand. I, You know, frankly, at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I graduated from graduate school and I actually intended to go straight through for a PhD. I had a wonderful um, advisor um, at school. Professor Kevin Lang, who is actually a micro economist focusing mm. on labor markets. And that was my area of focus was labor economics, the micro side, not the macro side. So That's really funny because I think of you as a housing and real estate mm-hmm. specialty, yep. not so much labor. That's true. And and what I do now is much more macro focus. It's markets focus. But what I was studying was 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 micro. Um, and um, I spoke to him and, and he advised, you know, Go into the workforce, figure out what you want to do, figure out what you can do with the skill set. Um, and then if if it seems appropriate, come back and pursue a higher degree. But it's not necessarily the right path for everyone. And um, I think oftentimes when you're in school and you're studying, you get so focused on what that next step is for your education. Sometimes you forget on what am I actually going to do with this? What should I be doing with it? And what am I good at? Where are my talents? So um, I took about a year after I graduated um, before entering the industry. And then I applied for jobs at uh, bulge bracket Wall Street firms only in their economics department, so mm-hmm. not through the typical analyst class. Um, I applied to economic consulting firms such as NARA, for example, and I was at the end I was between NARA and Lehman when mm-hmm. it came down to it. And then I, I also would, would have loved to have gone into policy, and one of my regrets is that I actually didn't go to the Federal Reserve first. I think that's a great opportunity that I didn't get at the time. Um, but I, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to have an offer at Lehman Brothers to join as a lab higher in their economics group. So one thing I knew, one thing I figured out is that I loved economics and I wanted to do something purely in economics. So who were your early mentors at uh, Lehman Brothers? Um, well, I'd, I'd obviously have to say uh, my boss then, who's my boss now, um, Ethan Harris. Um, he was the chief U.S. economist at Lehman when I joined and he's now- Wait a second. Ethan's the chief- U.S. economist, chief economist at, at, at Bank of America Merrill Lynch right now. He is the, yeah, he's the co-head of global economics. Did so. you come over from Lehman to Merrill with him as part of a team or is this just coincidence? Um, well, it's not coincidence, but I did not come, with, I did not go with him. Um, so I, I stayed at Barclays um, after Lehman went under. And Barclays um, took, for those people who don't remember, post-bankruptcy uh, filing, Barclays essentially Took over all of Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. at a very advantageous cost. It was yeah. a great. It was a great deal for Barclays. Yeah, at the time it was hard to see how anything was great, but in retrospect, yes, that's 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 exactly right. We'll, and, and we'll talk more of... about the financial crisis later because okay. okay. you were right in the I eye was. of the hurricane. Oh, I was. Um, but I was fortunate enough to move over to Barclays. I stayed there for some time, and then. 
Ethan recruited me back to work with him again at, at Merrow, which has been a great, a great move for me. So, um, of course, he is clearly one of my mentors. I've learned a lot from him in terms of how to be an economist on Wall Street. And there is a lot to learn because it's one thing to understand economics in theory. It's another thing to understand in terms of what it means for the business and how to be a market economist. And there's two distinct things. Other early mentors, I mean, I think uh, the economics team overall, I worked, I got to work with Drew Mattis, who's mm-hmm. now um, economist at, at UBS. Um, he was quite influential in my career. He really showed me the ropes. He taught me what it meant to be a trading floor economist, how to understand the data and how to interact with the sales force. John Shin, who was an economist at Lehman at the time, he's now in FX research at Bank of America Maryland. So I'm once again a coll- colleague of his. And he also uh, was, was, was really influential in terms of me understanding um, what it meant to 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 produce quality research notes on Wall Street, but also be short and to the point. So, those were kind of the mentors in terms of strictly economics. But of course, there's these these broader, bigger mentors as well in the industry. So, what's your favorite? We have a minute left in the segment. Uh, what's okay. what's your favorite part of the job as an economist at a big firm? Hmm. You know, I think what's great about being an economist on Wall Street is that you, for me personally, I sit on the trading floor. I get to be in the action. There's so much adrenaline. The day goes by so quickly. So I get to think about the big picture. I get to do research. I, I, I keep up with the, the literature coming out of academia and out of the Federal Reserve Bank's but I get to apply it immediately, and I see how the market reacts to it. So I find that I have the best of both worlds in that respect. Take us through a day in the life for someone who has a job mm. like yours, working at a shop like Merrill. Sure. So it starts early because the markets start early, and there's um, morning meetings. We have to cover the data, think about what's going to influence. Define early. So define early. Six forty-five, seven fifteen. I'm in so, the office. Okay. That's pretty early. You're in the office. In the office. That's pretty. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, sit down, try to understand the data that's coming out for the day, talk to the sales force, um, talk to the traders, so do the, the basic wrap. I have what's called a hoot, or it's like a microphone that I go over when the data comes out. Squawk box. Squawk, exactly. That's what they used to call hoot and holler or squawk box. Exactly, which really helps because if I was just to stand up and try to shout, it would not at all be effective. You do not have a <laughs> voice that's going to penetrate a loud room full of traders. No, I don't think I would. I don't. Think and the I trading would floor in Merrill for people who haven't been downtown, that's a phenomenal space. I remember going there for something fifteen years ago, yeah. and I'm sure it's changed a number. Well, of Well, we've since mo- then. Yeah, we're now. Well, we're you not midtown. Yeah, right. but you're right. The, the downtown is. You're absolutely right. It's exceptionally large. It's like a football field. Now it's a bit more manageable in that the way they separate the businesses, you can kind of... But it's still huge. Oh, it's massive. It's yeah. massive. It's massive. So it, You walk um, in and it's like, wow, yeah. how does anybody get anything done here? Yeah. it's But you know, you get you hive. get used to it. And, and in a certain, a certain extent, that, that buzz on the training floor makes you more efficient. <clears throat> and, and, and everybody else around you is picking up two phones and has five screens. So right. you're doing the same. And and it's great. So the morning, I'm um, very much focused on what's happening in terms of the data flow, the markets, talking to clients, talking to sales and trading. The afternoon, things will quiet down a bit. Uh, more client meetings. Um, sometimes I'll go to the research floor where it's a bit more quiet and I can write, talk to the rest of the team, um, and try to get our weekly publication out. Um, every week, it's almost like having a homework assignment. <laughs> you have to write a piece about what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the markets, what our readers might care about. How do you get anything written 
with all that buzz going on, all that din. So I think to a certain extent, again, being on the train floor, being close to the action, you you have a better understanding of what's important and what our clients are talking about and what people want to understand. So you get inspired by sitting on the train floor in, tra- in terms of getting out relevant research. But you're right, when, it, when you have to read through papers and you have to actually put pen to paper, oftentimes you do need to remove yourself from the floor, which of course I do. I'll either go to a research floor or sometimes I get my best work done at night after I have dinner it's quiet from you know eight o'clock to nine o'clock I can sit and write and I do right I, I find the early morning hours are, are just perfect for that there's no I mean, more like, early morning hours for me though. <laughs> 430 to 5:30 is nothing going on it's great oh, goodness. so so let's talk a little bit you are only the second woman we've had as a guest we have Liz Ann Saunders scheduled for later this spring oh I and, am honored well we've been trying to bring more people who mm. are not white males as as guests and it's kind of hard to find people at a certain level on wall street who aren't part of the old boys network so let's first talk about you know i want to give you a quote from you that was pretty relevant you said when an opportunity presents itself that is challenging uncomfortable intimidating or makes you want to hide under the table, <laughs> that's just the sort of opportunity you have to take. Yeah. So discuss that a little I bit. I stand by those words. I think oftentimes, and perhaps it's more so for women than for men, I don't know. I think it depends on the individual. But oftentimes you shy away from opportunities that are intimidating, that scare you, that make your heart sink. But those are oftentimes where you have the best career advancement. So one of the things for for me I was media. When I started getting opportunities to go on, on TV, I was actually I was still at Lehman Brothers. So I was fairly new to this industry. I was fairly new to the job. And, um, you know, those... Whenever a producer would call, I would be intimidated. I'd be like, oh my gosh, maybe maybe the timing won't work out. Maybe I don't have to do it because it was so nerve-wracking to me. But that, I think, has certainly been one of the major things that have supported my career is visibility. And it, it helps me in terms of being able to communicate and being a more effective economist. So let me give you another quote of your own. Okay. You once said, the lack of women at the top of the industry is a challenge for women in finance. Yeah. So explain what you mean by that. Well, I think particularly for me starting out at Lehman Brothers, um, I felt that there weren't that many role models. So a lot of the senior management were men. Um, and even a lot, kind almost of all. M- most all. Um, and even the mid-level, like the higher mid-level, were heavily dominated by, by men. So it was hard to understand looking ahead how do you – are there things, are there unknowns, right? Are there things that are ultimately going to make it impossible for me to achieve success here because other women have not succeeded? And you don't know. Maybe it's because there are a number of factors for why that might be. But as a young woman starting out, I think it could be discouraging when you don't see other people that you could relate to that are in senior roles. And one of the things I have to say is a lot has changed over those that, 10 years. Literally my next question. Okay. What's changed over the past 10 a years? A lot. I mean, to <laughs> me, it's, <laughs> I promise I'm not looking at your sheet. Um, I think there's been much advancement and maybe it's simply moving from Lehman to B of A. But here at B of A, I have a number of senior role models that are women. The head of research, Ethan's boss, Candace Browning, um, she's an exceptional role she's model. She's been there for quite a while, right? She's she been has. head of research for at least, we're mutual friends with Dave Rosenberg, mm-hmm. who used to be 
had Ethan's job yep. before, uh, a few years before him. Yep. And I think I met her through him. I'm sure. I want to say it's a decade ago. Yeah. No, so she's, she's been had... a very senior female on Wall Street for a long, long time. She's she supposed has. to be a tough cookie, too. <laughs> I think she's incredibly good at her job, and she understands the business, and she understands what it means to be an analyst. And I think she understands how to, how to, how to get appropriate balance. So seeing her have success has been um, really important to me, and it's and 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 it's it's also across the across the business. I can count a number of senior women at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, that kind of have done it all. And 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 frankly, I now consider myself to be in that camp. Well, you were promoted to managing director at BAML fairly uh, mm-hmm. young. Yes. Yeah. And what was that process like? Was that was that a surprise? Was that exciting? Um, well, it wasn't a surprise because I had to advocate for myself. You always have to advocate ah, for yourself. Okay. It doesn't just happen by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that. And um, one of the things that I realized very quickly is that I had a, a very large support network. Um, many, particularly women, stood up and said, you know, you, you are very talented and you should and will be successful and you deserve the recognition of managing directors. So I had a lot of support from women across the business, but also, you know, a number of obviously men as well and in, in senior positions. And it was it was a very um, enlightening process for me, the managing director process. It's a hard process. I can imagine. You have to have a network of supporters and um, almost like a doctoral dissertation and you <laughs> yeah, go before the committee. It's very competitive. We were beginning to discuss what it was like being at Lehman Brothers right out of school. Mm. But let's fast forward a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You were there right through everything mm-hmm. hitting the fan. What was it like in the midst of Lehman Brothers during 2008? There was just a great deal of uncertainty, and that uncertainty ultimately translated to panic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we all kind of had a, 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 an idea that there were problems in the housing market. There were problems in the financial system after Bear Stearns went under. Um, there was and let's, hope. let's put that into a little context. In 07, a fairly leveraged Bear Stearns pair of hedge funds that mostly focused on mortgage-backed and other credit mm-hmm. derivatives blew up, and then Bear Stearns got a little wobbly. And then in the spring, Bear Stearns ended up going down and last minute taken over by J.P. Morgan for originally $2 a share, and I think it it ended up being $10 a share. And after Bear went down, everybody said, well, who looks similar to Bear? And Lehman was the next in size and a lot of similar paper and, and swam in a lot of the same waters. But did anyone there really have, a, they did a lot of mortgage back, then a lot of securitized things, but did anyone there day to day, did you, was there really a sense that the, the whole shooting match is going to come tumbling down, or were people really surprised by that? So I think the initial view was that we were, Lehman was different than Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns was somewhat unique, and although Lehman had issues, a lot of other financial institutions had issues, they were manageable, and we'd be able to absorb the losses. Um, I would say about a few weeks before the D-Day, the bankruptcy. Um, that's it, September it, 08, so we're right. talking end of the summer. That's right. By the end of the summer, I think it became pretty clear that there were more severe problems with Lehman, and sitting on the trading floor, we under I saw firsthand what our traders were saying and the sales were saying people didn't want us did not want Lehman as a counterparty so you weren't getting the trading flow you were seeing ser- serious issues in terms of the balance sheet as well I think traders and Salesforce had an understanding that they were bigger issues but then again the backdrop was well 
who would let Lehman go under? Lehman Brothers, they would be a buyer. Bear right. Stearns went under, but there was a buyer and there was some. There was a savior. Um, the, the, the likelihood that Lehman would be able to fall into bankruptcy, I think everybody up until the last minute thought was a very low probability. Um, it wasn't until that Sunday night um, when it became clear that Bank of America was buying Merrill Lynch, not Lehman Brothers. Right. Which uh, worked out okay Which worked out fine for run. me in the end, right. but at <laughs> the time was absolute panic. It became clear that we were indeed filing for bankruptcy. And uh, I remember looking, watching TV and seeing everybody go over to Lehman Brothers to try to clear out their desks on the view that maybe we'd be locked out on Monday morning. Wow. So, you know, after several glasses of wine, my husband and I went over to Lehman to try to clear my, <laughs> my, my office and everybody was on the trading floor and it was just, it was, it was surreal. You know, the one thing, the one little factoid about the Lehman story that I think always surprises people was that Buffett had made a offer that was ultimately rejected by Dick Fold. And that, compared to what he ultimately ended up doing with Goldman Sachs, was actually a more generous offer. But at the time, the assumption was Lehman isn't going away. Yeah. He's trying to lowball us and steal the company. And... You end up in a situation that uh, I think the fact that Fold never took that offer kind of made it hard for the Fed to come in and, and rescue them. You know, there was rumors that um, Paulson wasn't a fan of Fold's and there was a little uh, back and forth between the two of them. Any truth to that or is that just sort of you know, scuttlebutt I, and rumor? I of- wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I think um, – that's the speculation, and I think that a lot of people at Lehman believe that was the case. Um, people at Lehman bled green. I mean, there was a lot of loyalty sure. to Lehman Brothers. People 140 there, years, right? A long, long time. A long time. And, and you know, yes, there, was a, there, were, there were excesses. There were problems. There were a lot of mistakes made. But there were a lot of great people there that were heavily committed to the company and to the and to the markets. So I think that it was, you know, it was really hard. It was a really hard time for a lot I of people. Can, I can imagine. Uh, do you know Jack Rivkin very well? Because he ran Lehman uh, Research back in the 80s and 90s and did a really nice job of it. Yeah, Lehman Research was number one in right. II for years. It was taken over by Ravi Mattu, mm-hmm. um, led research while I was there, and he was an incredibly dedicated, diligent. I mean, the, the content coming out of Lehman Research was exceptional. Right. That's the great tragedy of Lehman collapsing. It, You know, who really cares about Dick Fold? There was another mm-hmm. 20,000 employees or so, and- yeah. A lot of them ended up at Barclays, well, but not everybody what, did. That's what Barclays bought. They bought the human capital, and they did well with it. Let's talk a little bit about the current recovery and economic cycle. Where where are we in the economy today? Yeah, I mean, it seems like this has been a pretty old business cycle. So when you think about the number of years we've theoretically been in recovery, it seems like it's old. But in terms of the progress made, you can still argue that it's fairly young. So when you think about the cyclical sectors of the economy. Housing is one. Consumer durables is another. Capital expenditure is another. We're still at levels as a share of the economy, which are historically low and and arguably still close to recessionary territory. So I think it is the case that there's room for growth. There's room for expansion. There's been exceptional monetary policy support. Monetary policy works with long lags. Um, This environment of very low rates and high liquidity ultimately should translate to stronger economic growth. We mentioned earlier your colleague Dave Rosenberg. He's Mm -hmm. fond of showing a chart that shows the housing recovery has bought home sales, both new and existing home sales, Mm -hmm. 
back to the levels where other recessions tend to bottom. Yeah. Like we're all the way up to the bottom of previous. Now, this was obviously a massive housing recession, and that's mm -hmm. where a lot of uh, credit was where a lot of the crisis was centered. But when we talk about housing recovery, why so weak? Why so soft? Despite such very yeah. low uh, low mortgage rates, and that's been one of the puzzles. I think the the challenge has been that there was a lot of equity lost in the housing market, so people suffered severe home price declines, um, and that held back some of the churn in the housing market. You had to get back into positive equity. Um, we had to deal with a, an exceptional amount of foreclosures, and that not created, quite ten million, but pretty close. Yeah, and that created a lot of distressed inventory into the market that had to clear. And, and luckily it cleared, and it cleared in part because investors found opportunities in buying out these distressed properties at deep discounts, some of which were converted into rentals. Um, and that's created a floor for home prices. And now home prices have been recovering. They start to turn in early 2012. And last year, we're up about 5%. And we're looking for about 3.5% appreciation this year. So we've seen progress. But I still think that there's further upside. And really, where the upside is, it's not so much for home prices, but it's really for construction. I think the level of our housing stock is too low to accommodate the ultimate growth in household formation in the population. And, and that's been very weak. We've had the, mm -hmm. the story is millennials living in, in their parents' basement. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing signs now that that's starting to turn. We are. Um, the most recent data from the Census Bureau showed that at the end of last year, there was a notable pickup in household formation. The data is extremely volatile, so you have to kind of smooth through these quarterly swings. But for last year, by my estimates, we created about 800,000 households. Still below. What's normal? What should we be creating? You know, normal is 1-1 one, one to 1-2 one, um, if you have normal headship rates. I think the good news is that the millennial generation is a large cohort, the kids, the baby boomers. So there's a lot of them. And as to your point, many who have been delayed in entering the economy to a certain extent because of the weakness in this business cycle, because of other challenges related to student debt and, and the such. But over time, these are going to be people who form households and we need to build to accommodate it. What happens if towards the latter part of this year, and I don't want to guess if it's the summer or the end of the year or maybe 2016, what happens to the housing market if we see rates yeah. start to, I don't even want to say go up, let's just say normalize, because <laughs> this is not a normal rate environment. No. Uh, if you could get a 30-year fixed mortgage for 3.5%, that's pretty insane for what we've experienced for the past 10, 20, 30, 40 yep. years. <laughs> there's nothing normal about this economy right now or about the financial markets. I think there's been a lot of distortions. So, yeah, so let's say the Fed starts hiking interest rates, there's liftoff, and there's that step towards, as you said, normalization. Interest rates rise. I think if it's you know a reasonable increase in interest rates, a gradual rise a in interest rates. Percent a year, let's call it. Percent a year might be a little bit high, but if it's something a little bit less than that, so it's even slower. The Fed is really gradual, and it's accompanied by stronger economic growth, and I think the housing market can handle it. If you have something akin to the taper tantrum, which was in summer of 2013, over 100 basis point move higher in interest rates in a two-month time, that, that shocked bad. the housing market, and that was clearly negative. If something like that happened again, it would be a setback for the housing market. What, what do you think about the theory that, or the thesis I've heard some people float, that as soon as the Fed starts raising rates, people are going to realize, hey, these really once-in-a-generation low rates are going away, and we better buy a house now or we're going to pay a lot more for a mortgage. You know, that there may be some initial um, 
move higher, maybe some generation of activity from that. But I think it's quite temporary. Ultimately, what matters for home buying is income growth, not only today, but also for tomorrow. So expectations that income will remain positive and growing in the years to come. And then affordability, mortgage rates. But I think probably the most important factor is simply this idea of job security. So the labor market is arguably the most important thing for housing. Let's put housing aside and talk about some of your other favorite indicators. What do you really like to look at (laughs) that gives you a sense of here's what's going on in the overall economy and here's what this means for equities. You're asking economists for their favorite indicators. Yes. That's hard. Which child do you like right. the best? <laughs> I only have one child. That so I can So there you go. That's an easy question. You're going to end up having more than one yeah, kid, and you're, yeah, yeah. they're all going to ask you, who do you like best? Oh. And you have to lie to them and say, I like you all the I same. I like you all the same, yeah. So, okay. so what is your favorite indicator? Uh, favorite indicator. I, or, or let me uh, rephrase it. Yes. What do you think is the most interesting or perhaps mm. underrated indicator? I mean, obviously, the jobs report every month is going to get a lot of attention, and it is important. You have to smooth through it, but we have to look at it. It's, it's relevant. I think retail sales is an important indicator. The consumer makes up 70% of GDP, and uh, the consumer is faring, I think, is really an important part of the overall story. It, it gives a sense of what kind of future investment we might need, what what kind of hiring are we actually seeing, what's the quality of hiring. And what's been somewhat interesting to me recently is the past few months, consumer spending and retail sales have been soft. Despite the drop in gasoline prices, mm-hmm. this, despite the increase in income, mm-hmm. what, why do you think that is? It's a puzzle. It could partly be that there's simply a lag between the drop in gasoline prices and spending. Consumers have to believe that it's a persistent drop in gasoline prices. And maybe can some consumers are also saving for bigger ticket items. So, Although when we see auto sales, other than this past month, yeah. which I think we can all – I don't. I hate blaming stuff on the weather, yeah. but it's been so god-awful yeah. that I, I, I'm, I'm willing to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt. But we're still at a $16 million annual yeah. run rate. Those are huge numbers for automobiles. Yeah. But also in, in autos, unlike housing, you've had financing come back, and you've had financing come back pretty aggressively. So mm-hmm. the ability to get leverage, the ability to spend, again, for autos, which is something that depreciated, you've seen a, a, you know, a nice acceleration. And, and I actually think there's further upside for auto sales. Really? Yeah. Household formation has not even picked up yet. So we're seeing this increase in autos even before you get the rebound in household formation. The gain in household formation should also generate an increase in demand for autos that's coming. So let's talk uh, about other durable goods. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen seen this uptick in autos, and you mentioned the credit situation, but we haven't seen a giant uptick in durable goods, Mm -hmm. of which automobile is just one. One category, So is it related to home sales? Why are we not seeing washer dryers? You would think people who can't move, all right, I'm stuck here. I don't have a lot of equity in my house. I'm not going anywhere. Let's redo the kitchen or something to that effect. Why have we not seen durable goods really tick up the way autos have? Financing is one aspect. it's, it's, It's not as easy to get financing for some of these other types of durable goods like appliances and such. You can put you can take out a, you know, a revolving loan on your credit card, but the standards there are a little bit stricter than it has been for auto. So that's probably one factor. I think the other one is that for for housing, yes, home prices have recovered, but you still have a number of homeowners that are either in 
you know, near negative equity or kind of flat. And it's also very hard to extract money out of your house right now for these types of renovation projects. So the ability to get to do a cash out refinancing or the ability to get a home equity line of credit, those are much more restricted than they had been in prior cycles. Well, uh, as we saw leading into the financial crisis, exactly. that, that frame of reference, it was the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And now it's, it's not so the, much. <laughs> it, it's the exact opposite. So it's, if you can't withdraw money from your house to renovate, you have to have, and, you, and it's hard to borrow, you have to have cash up front, and a lot of households are still fairly budget constrained. I, not to get too personal about this, but I tell the story all the time. So we just moved in September. I recall doing a refinance in, I want to say, 06 or 07, mm -hmm. where the guy literally pulled up to our driveway, flung the door open, left the car running, came in with papers and apologized, hey, I have a closing to go to, I'm late, sign here, here, initial here, and gave us a check, and he ran out the door. My wife and I looked at each other like, did that really happen? <laughs> We're sitting here with a $30,000 check and our, our mortgage payments are $500 less a month. And this guy was a ghost, was in and out. Now, we just moved in September. It was the most insane set of experiences. <laughs> there was no stone left on. It yeah. was as opposite as anything mm -hmm. you can imagine. I'm wondering how significant that is relative to what we're seeing in housing, what we're seeing in durable goods, and we're not seeing that in autos, and maybe that's why autos are Yeah, I think, so um, listen, credit is the is a fuel for the economic engine, and if credit is tight, which it is now for mortgages, it will limit the pace of activity. Um, and you have seen the pendulum swing to the extreme from a very easy market to one that's quite tight. Um, and maybe it has been a, a you know a, a excessive move, but there were a lot of changes that had to be made, and um, that process has been painful. We've been speaking with Michelle Meyer. She is the Deputy Chief Economist for North America for Bank America Merrill Lynch. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and hear the rest of it. You can find that podcast either at Apple iTunes or on Bloomberg. Com. Uh, check out my Twitter feed, at Ritholtz, or my daily column on BloombergView.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, welcome back to the show. This is our podcast portion, which you know already, because if you're hearing this, you're not listening to the radio. You're listening either... Uh, to an MP3 or Apple iTunes or SoundCloud or something like that. My guest today is Michelle Myers. I know Michelle, God, I think I first met you with Dave Rosenberg mm -hmm. some many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And you've come to some of the, um, you know, Scarsdale Equities started something many decades ago. If you read the book, The Money Game by Adam Smith, not that Adam Smith, that's yeah. just the <laughs> nom de plume, they talk about these idea lunches. And I got fortunate enough to be invited to one some years ago. And I said, these are great, but I got work to do during the day. Why don't we make these idea dinners? And they said, uh, no, we, we're going to stick with lunches. So we started doing our own sort of dinners. And you've come to a few of these. Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions I have for you um, was who were some of your economist heroes you'd like to meet? And you finally managed to meet um, Paul Krugman mm -hmm. yeah. at one of these dinners. Yeah, yeah, he is one of the economist heroes. I just find him to be exceptionally smart, which is not a bold statement given that he is a Nobel <laughs> Prize winner. They're not giving him out to dummies, <laughs> no. pretty much. They're usually, um, uh, that that's one of the qualifications. Yeah. Not stupid. Not stupid. So clearly, is a he's an incredibly smart economist. 
but he is really passionate too. And whether or not you agree with his political stance, I think his his passion and his ability to lay out a concise, interesting argument is 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 fascinating. So I I read him regularly. I really enjoy his blog. Um, the page that he, so he's a Monday Friday. Um, writer for the New York Times. Right. But then he has his blog. Section. And then there's Conscious of a Liberal, his yeah. blog. But that real estate that he mm. owns um, on Mondays and Fridays, some people have called that the most influential commentary, uh, quote unquote, real estate in the world of publishing. That well, That is an amazing page. He says things that, and he says it in a way where that other, that other people won't say, and 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 sometimes he's sometimes he's wrong, but a lot of time he is right, and he's saying things that other people are thinking, but they're not willing to put on paper. I, I've disagreed with him a couple of times. He and I disagree about securitization. Yeah, you know he doesn't like it. I say, well, if you have garbage in, garbage out. Um, but as long as you're not feeding bad sausage into bad meat into the machine, you're not going to get bad sausage. And right. what we did during the crisis is. All those bad mortgages went in, and guess what came out the yeah. other end. Yeah. So it's it's not the machinery; it's 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 the food stuff yeah. you're you're putting in. What what other uh, rock star economists uh, impress you? Oh, um, rock star! What is a rock star? <laughs> well, Krugman is one. Uh, who who else is a rock star economist? Um, I would say uh, I don't know if people still think this of Reinhardt and Rogoff as oh, sure, rock star sure, economists, sure, sure. and then we have guys like um, Nuro Rubini, who I, I think maybe uh, mm-hmm. peaked a few years ago, but was highly, highly regarded mm, by a doom lot of people. and gloom, yeah, a little, a little too much. <laughs> um, the person who preceded Dave Rosenberg was Gary Schilling, sure, who's still publishing on a regular basis and. Another one who says kind of outrageous things that have turned out to be more right than wrong. Yeah. He's been pounding the table about, hey, the 10 year is going to have a one handle on it yeah. before you can imagine. Why are all the rock stars negative? Um, <laughs> uh, let's say uh, Justin Wolfers up and coming. Probably not. A, I wouldn't describe him as a as a negative. His wife, I think, um, ended up on. Was it the CEA or where did where did she end up going? Um, well, uh, let's not use the term rock, rock star. What other economists do you um, find influential or well, I mean, do you I especially Rein- admire? Reinhardt and Rogo- Rogoff, I think, was you know, particularly influential in this cycle because what they their work was around um, how do economies cope and how do they deal with financial crisis and balance sheet recessions. So their work, I think, really rang true and mattered a great deal. Um, this time around, so there are a lot of lessons learned from pe- their work. People obsess about the Excel error, but oh please! But if you go back yeah. and look at, and I'm getting the dates right, I want to say January 2008, they had a paper called "Looking at Five Financial Crises." Yeah. January 08, forget Lehman, before Bear Stearns, yeah. and the, they basically said, "Hey, the typical financial crisis sees stock markets cut in half and real estate drop 30 to 35 percent." And it looks like we're heading into that sort of a yeah. credit crisis that could result in that. Nobody really paid attention. I, I happened to see that paper and said, wow, this is astonishingly data-driven. And that basically paper became the basis of 800 years of financial folly. Yeah, this yeah. this time is different was their book, but uh, I, which is a difficult book to get through. But um, Here's another rock star economist, Robert Schiller. Love Schiller. Love. Absolutely. He's we had great. Schiller. Yeah. We had him in here a few months ago. 
the nicest guy in the world and just so insightful and so he's just delightful. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a chance to work with him in any capacity? I've met him as well. Um, so I got to shake his hand and talk to him a bit. And um, Another Nobel laureate. Yeah. Um, and he, his, I mean, clearly rational exuberance um, that went a long way. And he's had great calls both on the stock market around the tech bust and the housing market around the housing bust. Um, but his analysis, his way of thinking, um, I think it it's, you know, it's extraordinarily high quality and it's it's... It's very interesting. Um, so yeah, that he would be high up on my list. So let me shift gears a little bit on you. What do you think the role of the Economist is on Wall Street? What is the role of the Economist on Wall Street? That's a great question. Um, so I think the way I interpret the role is that you're supposed to be a source of information to the sales force, to our traders, so internally, but also externally to our clients. So that means analyzing the high-frequency data as it comes in. What is our expectation for the data? Where is it relative to consensus? What can go wrong? How do we interpret it once it comes out? Where are the special factors? So have real-time, fast analysis on the the high-frequency data, but then also be able to paint a picture for the the economy in the medium term and some of the risks even to the longer term. So you have to be able to remove yourself from the day-to-day volatility in the data and the day-to-day volatility in the markets and say, what are we really learning? What, what do we really know about the economy and what is our baseline forecast and where are the risks around that forecast? Because I think when you're in the markets and you're in front of a screen day after day, it's really hard not to get influenced by what the market is telling us today in terms of what it will mean for tomorrow. Timing and understanding, identifying turning points is very hard to do, but to the extent that we can help with that as an economist, I think that's that's an important part of the role. So you, you raise a really interesting issue is the relationship of markets to the economy. Mm-hmm. How fast do the markets turn before we start seeing it in the economic data, either up off the lows or down off the off the highs? What's the lag like and why why is it such yeah. a uh, sizable time period? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. Anything about the markets that for the equity markets, um, they're capturing the health of the major corporations in the country. So, um, if investors are starting to see problems in these corporations, soft revenue, earnings mm-hmm, misses, mm-hmm. things that are essentially suggesting, hey, this economy isn't hitting Correct. on all cylinders anymore. Correct. That's going to show up in the market before we'll see it in the economic data. Yeah, to a certain extent. Now, of course, how companies are doing and not just a function of their revenues and their sales. It's sure. also a function of just their profitability, so their cost cutting. So you can have situations where you have really high corporate profits, like in this cycle, for a period of time, it was a profits recovery right. because of the excessive cost cutting, but you weren't really seeing underlying economic growth. So there's disconnects. Um, but because the fact that the equity markets are capturing large corporations, it's going to be indicative of what the economy is saying. And then I think in terms of the fixing income markets in terms of the way treasuries move, um, that's very much driven by expectations for Fed policy. And one of the interesting observations today is that the market is pricing in an extraordinarily low path of the terminal Fed funds rates. So they're saying that the Fed, yeah, they may start hiking interest rates before the end of the year, but they're not going to accomplish that much. They're not going to get very far. Um, and, 50 basis points? Is that yeah, a- oh, God, that would be dismal. But no, you know, maybe a terminal rate, 
two and a half percent or so. But think about two and a half percent Fed funds rate historically. Very low, very That's accommodating. Incredibly low. It's incredibly accommodating. So if all the Fed's able to achieve is to get the Fed funds rate up to two and a half percent, then it means that there's something much weaker about the economy and that the economy can't handle higher interest rates. And that's what the market's telling us. The Fed is not saying that. If you look at what the Fed is projecting in their summary of economic projections, they say they can get interest rates to three and a half or three and a quarter. Three and so, three quarters. But but over gradual long period of time, not uh by two thousand seventeen. Okay, so that's two years. So uh, let let's take the counter argument that we have a distortion in interest rates because of QE and the purchase of bonds. Mm -hmm. And when you look at quality A rated sovereign debt, there really isn't all that much of it. I know we talk about deficits and all these other things, but when you look around the world, how much high-quality sovereign paper is there? And keep in mind, we have this huge demographic that's aging, whose portfolios are becoming more and more bond-heavy. They're big buyers uh, of this. We have lots of foundations. There's a I don't have to tell you, there's a tremendous amount of wealth around the world. Very often, that's a fairly conservative portfolio, 50-50 or 60-40, not as heavy equities as you might be typical of a of a twenty something. Is it possible that what we're seeing is a shortage of quality sovereign paper? Well, that seems to be um, certainly one of the themes of last year. Is everybody was expecting the ten year to head higher? We can get to above three percent. That was very much the consensus view, and the exact opposite have happened. We got to a one handle briefly. <laughs> um, so, and and I think one of the factors that we that probably was underappreciated is what you just said that there was a search um, for yields and for quality assets, and with so much um, liquidity from central banks, it forced investors to, you know, move into U.S. Treasuries because if you think about the yield in U.S. Treasuries versus, let's say, German bonds, it's more attractive right. to buy U.S. Treasuries. And, and uh, you know, does anyone really think the U.S. is going to default on its Treasuries to the point that it, mm -hmm. we're worth a point and a quarter more right. than, than the German bonds or the Swiss bonds it, it's, or, or the Japanese bonds? It's really... Quite an as astonishing disparity. There is. There is. And um, that's why when you think about going back to this idea of are the markets distorted and how do you really understand the signal coming out of the markets, there's a question about that because we've never had such accommodative monetary policy, not just from the Federal Reserve, but globally. So let's talk a little bit about QE and ZERP and monetary policy here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Federal Reserve and the ECB in Europe and, and the Bank of Japan. What is the impact of all this monetary policy trying to stimulate the economy yeah. um, in, in light of somewhat missing fiscal stimulus? Certainly in Europe, their austerity is there's been no fiscal stimulus. They finally started some of that in Japan and have seen somewhat of a reaction and in the U.S., we haven't really seen a whole whole lot of, compared to past cycles, this seems to be a fairly muted fiscal response, but an unusually robust monetary response. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it seems like the crisis was a long time ago at this point, and it was, but Seven years the ago. initial um, response after the crisis was 
extraordinary on the fiscal side as well. I mean, think about the ARA, the American Recovery and Reinvestment right. Act. It was a massive amount about of money. About $800 billion, dollars, yeah. two-thirds of which were temporary tax cuts and extension mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Not quite a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Your, um, Krugman wanted that. <laughs> he wanted $3 trillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he wa- criticizes that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough stimulus, and maybe it maybe it wasn't, but who knows what the counterfactual was? But it was, it was a, a you know an aggressive response um, to an extraordinary recession. So, certainly so, more aggressive than we saw in Europe. They they oh, went the opposite they went direction. The opposite way. Yeah, there's yeah, your counterfactual. Yeah. Is here's what happens. Yeah, that's the counterfactual to the yeah. other way. Here's what happens if we don't mm-hmm. put a trillion dollars worth of stimulus in. You end up with a five-year longer recession, it looks like. Yeah. So now the question is, and this is a question always for policymakers, and this is where I think, again, going back to Krugman's arguments, there was a lot of pushback, which is policymakers are designed to smooth the business cycle. And certainly the Federal Reserve is. You're not supposed to allow the economy to overheat, and you're not, allowed, not supposed to allow the economy to, uh, to to fall into too deep a recession. So you, you smooth the cycle. But the question is, what is what – is, what is the best approach? Is it better to just not have a policy response, have a very deep recession, but allow for there to be natural clearing, and then you have a, a very you know rapid and robust recovery after a period of severe pain? Um, and that's where there's a debate between free market views versus those that have more Keynesian and believe that there should be a, a, a policy response. And I think, broadly speaking, the Keynesian views have won out in this scenario in the this cycle. The data certainly leans that way. Um, but history will tell us after the fact, which was really right. The the other issue we run into when trying to look at that natural experiment between the U.S. and Europe is that the electorate only tolerates so much pain. And so in yeah. a lot of these countries in Europe right. where you had austerity as the order of the day, they've been tossed out. I Look what's going on in Greece. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've had enough. We're not going to take this anymore and we're going to elect a yeah. new group of people yeah. who are going to try something else because austerity doesn't seem to be working too well over there. You're right. And so that's what you have to think about. What about social unrest? It's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, understand, in France, when they threaten to cut vacations from 16 to 15 weeks, they're rioting in the streets. Mm-hmm. The U.S., uh, we tend to be a little more tolerant of that. We're, <laughs> we're, I think philosophically, we haven't wrapped our heads around as much of the safety net here as mm-hmm. they, they're used to in mm-hmm. in Europe. I think there are a lot of reasons for that philosophical difference. But at a certain point, it it looked like the U.S. Um, electorate was going to get angry, and then it just kind of faded away. It, it dissipated. We have a much shorter attention span, apparently, <laughs> on this side of no, the Atlantic we, than, uh, than yeah. they do. I also think the economy just came back. It came back. I mean, yeah. think about the unemployment rate fell sharply. Um, initial jobless games, it cures a lot. If you have stronger economic growth, if people have jobs, feel a lot better about what's happening in policy. They're not marching on D.C. when when the unemployment rate drops in half. Yeah, not to the same extent, that's for sure. So so now let me ask you, um, let's shift away from from the crisis and let's shift away from um, the austerity argument. What's the big problem with forecasting an economist? It's one of the the biggest (laughs) criticisms we see is, gee, economists make these forecasts and they're always wrong. 
Well, well they're not what always is, wrong. Well, someone, <laughs> somebody randomly is going to be right. But why the obsession yeah. with predictions? From you know, it's funny you say I all because when you describe yeah. your job, almost nothing you said is. And now I'm going to tell clients, here's where I think non-farm yeah. payroll is going to be yeah. in a month, and here's where the Dow is going to be and in I'm, a year. And I do that. I don't forecast the market, but I do forecast the economy. And I always I always try to represent both sides of the argument by saying, you know, here's my baseline view, but here's what can go right, and here's what can go wrong relative to that view. But when you ask that question, I always think back to this conversation I had with my grandfather who I who I adored um, when I first started in the industry, and he said, "It's a bright guy." He said, "I don't understand. You all look at the same data. You all have the same information. <laughs> Why are there so many different forecasts out there?" <laughs> and I was like, "You're right, but it's the way you interpret." The data and there's a lot of judgment that goes into it and people have their own leanings and their own biases so forecasting is um it's a science but you know it's also an art to say to say the least <laughs> yeah and I, i'm i'm guilty of criticizing economists for playing that game mm-hmm. i wish more of them would say look i'd rather analyze and explain what's going on than project a number because history tells us we're not really good at that as a group, we're not especially good at that. Fair, fair criticism or not? Um, no, I mean, I think it's fair in the sense that there is this tendency to use what happened in the past to explain the future. So it's very hard to understand turning points. It's always darkest before the dawn, right? So it's it's very hard to say that you're ever going to be able to get out of whatever the cycle is. So when we're in a recession, we're never going to get out of the recession. So it's no, always you extrapolate to infinity. And yeah, and when we're in expansion, you always come up with a reason why the good times will just continue. Right. And for those that have bold calls, um, you said Nori Overbini, for example, was making a bold call that you know during the 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 good times that they're going to end and they're going to end badly. At some point, you're going to be right with that call, and he was, but trying to but time he repeated it, it a yeah, number of and years. that's hard, and it's hard to do. Um, and there's always this tendency also to return to some sort of steady state, some sort of equilibrium, because you don't know what kind of shocks are going to hit the economy. So uh, I don't want to keep going back to Krugman, but he did a whole analysis on freshwater versus saltwater economists. And there was a lot of self-flagellation about the profession having not seen the crisis coming beforehand. It was, And even in the early stages of it, kind of underestimating, gee, this is bad and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Where, where do you come out on that sort of you know, deep self-analysis of, of the profession <laughs> of economics? Yeah, I mean... I- Listen, it's it's again, it's not perfect. I think we, you know, you do what you can with the data you have and with your judgment. But you're right; a lot of people missed it. They missed the crisis. Um, I remember even sitting at, at at Lehman Brothers. We had we were working on this piece on the housing market, and I was working with our mortgage strategy team, looking at um, the vintages of, of mortgages. So taking um, the you know assuming different default paths paths for mortgages that have been originated given their credit history. So assuming their credit history was the likelihood of default. And at the time, we came up with exceptionally large numbers for foreclosure. But we had a conversation saying, oh, well, here are the reasons it's not going to happen. Because that was the view that, yeah, you can kind of smell that there were issues and um, you can have some problems, but it wouldn't be outright disaster. 
uh, a lot of people like to say there were there was froth in the housing market, not a bubble. Right. So you look back and and you think, oh my. Gosh, how did I ever think that? Look at home prices relative to income. Look at, um, you know, there were all the signs, but cost of rental versus cost of buy, like several in, in standard real time, deviations. In real away. time, I think it's hard to put that that exceptional scenario. It's hard to pencil in that exceptional scenario, and, and it's always hard to imagine the extraordinary um, circumstances versus mm-hmm. the ordinary mm-hmm. ones. Um, oh, that's funny. So when you when you're looking at um, when you're looking at different uh, when you're looking at different scenarios and trying to figure out exactly what's going to blow up and what's not going to blow up, it's much easier to say, well, this is a little crazy and it'll settle down, than to say, hey, the world's going to come to an end. Mm-hmm. This is going to be an abyss. Yeah, of course, of course, it's a much easier view to communicate. Um, and I think we've learned from the crisis, though, because you look back at what occurred and i think that we have to realize that you know disaster can strike again at some point so i think there are lessons learned for the average person and for forecasters but um you know there's this tendency to forecast some sort of return to equilibrium which may or may not take place sooner rather than later so what changes would you like to see take place in the profession of economics as practiced on wall street I think it'd be very helpful to have at all times some sort of modal distribution. So you have to find that for re- so, for listeners right, who may okay. not be economists. <laughs> so you give a forecast. You have to give a forecast. Here's where I see GDP growth. Here's where I see jobs. Here's where I see the Fed. Um, but what's my distribution of risks? Where where's the risks around that forecast? Are they leaning to the downside to the upside? Um, I think that would go a long way in terms of communicating the views and helping market participants. And and I do that i think we all do that to a certain extent but maybe to formalize it would be helpful so in other words it's not just the number but the context and yeah. the potential upside and downside to that yeah so that. rather than saying our view is for three percent growth you say our view is the economy will realize three percent growth but the risks are that there's a higher probability of a two percent than a four percent so now let's you know we skipped over the capex question Let, mm. let's let's address that um uh, We've seen the uptick in durable goods, at least in how in uh, automobiles, but not in other goods. Mm-hmm. And we've seen kind of soft retail spending elsewhere. Uh, but the the big question is, we're not seeing the sort of capex spending on the mm-hmm. corporate side that you would expect this far into a recovery. Why not? And and when are we going to see some real corporate capital expenditures that perhaps might be good for both? Um, the economy and and corporations' long-term returns. Yeah, so I think part of the challenge has been that there's a lot of uncertainty about this business cycle. This has been the recovery of fits and starts. So that has made many corporations hesitant in terms of doing these bigger bigger ticket item investments. Um, but the lar- large corporations, broadly speaking, should be prepared to do so. If you look at the health of their balance sheets, look at their ability to refinance debt at low levels, um, they're very sound and, and 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 should be ready to go in terms of investments. So I hope that it's just a matter of time. Smaller companies have struggled a bit more in the past several years. They haven't had the same access to credit. Um, That's a key driver, isn't it? It's a big, it's a big driver. And not only small businesses, but maybe even more importantly, is new business formation. New business mm-hmm. formation is absolutely critical to getting 
investment to pick up and to get hiring to pick up. And it's been a challenge for new businesses to form in this environment. It's been slower than average. Yes. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, one of the issues, and and yes, I focus on housing, so maybe I'm always inclined to go back to it. But I do think part of it links into housing and, and to the equity issue. A lot of times, small new businesses are formed by withdrawing money out of your home. It's a it's a personal loan or right? credit so, cards. Yeah, or some so other. you 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 finance it your, yourself, and you put a lot of your own capital um, out front to form a new business. And with difficulty getting home home equity lines of credit, and with a period of negative equity and low equity, that's probably made it a bit difficult for some businesses to form. I think maybe one of the other issues is just how a lot of industries has changed. So think about retail. Think about how much the market has changed in just the past 10 years. Um, we went from an, an environment where it was very common to go to malls and to browse and to, to shop in person to one where technology has made it so easy to just take out your smartphone or take out your iPhone and click on an app and buy exactly what you need for overnight shipping free. Which is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I I buy an, an exorbitant amount of stuff on Amazon Prime, especially having a, a baby at home. You need a lot of things and you need it quickly. And I don't have to go to the store to get it. it it's – I have – I first became an Amazon client when my college roommate gave me a birthday gift certificate. I want to say 97 or 98, something like that. And I, I've kicking and screaming, finally gave Amazon Prime uh, a try. Because the issue is always, what's the big deal? I, I'll throw something in my um, cart and all right, I'll get something else. And it used to be $25, now it's $35. Some. Yeah. And what I found with Amazon Prime, which is kind of funny, I, I'll do the 30-day, why not? And I find that your shopping style, just it's like click, one click, you don't even think about it mm -mm. anymore, mm -mm. whatever you want. And, and their two-day shipping, I don't want to say often, but surprisingly is there the next day. Yeah, I know. Like if I order something early on yeah. a Monday morning, it's in the mail. Mm -hmm. I get it at, at Tuesday. If you order it Sunday night, it, it's not showing up until Tuesday or Wednesday. But so it's amazing mm -hmm. how it – you know, there was a disc I had lent to somebody and someone said, oh, I – it was a Mark Knopfler, privateering. Which is, I, I'm a huge Dire Straits fan, and Mark Knopf was this fabulous guitarist. And a buddy called to say his puppy chewed up the disc, and he really popped. I ah, no problem. We were literally on the phone having a conversation. And by the time the conversation finished, I he says, you know, don't worry, I'll go get you another one. I go, too late. I already ordered it. Yeah. A month. <laughs> like, we, it was like yeah. privateering, into the thing, done. Uh -huh. Like, it, it's it's so easy and instantaneous mm -hmm. it's astonishing so mm -hmm. what does that mean for you you've mentioned retail well, what does this mean for that we have hundreds of millions of square feet mm -hmm. of retail malls and shopping and do we have too big a footprint for retail is that something that's going to really contract based on what's going on with technology? Well, I mean, I think we're we're consuming differently, as, as we just talked about, which means you don't need as much brick and mortar. And 
Uh, maybe you need more warehousing. Maybe you need more in distribution, terms of distribution centers, and, 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 drones sh- and shipping. To make deliveries. And drones, exactly. But tech, you can't can't avoid technology, and you have to embrace technology. And it, and it creates winners, but it also creates losers in the way. Are, are millennials going to the mall the way the baby boom generation would go sports shopping or retail therapy, as some people <laughs> called it? Is is this is this that different from the early from the previous? I mean, I. I don't know. It seems to be. I think the other issue is that there's been you know, people staying close to city centers uh, mm-hmm. for for longer. Um, so if you're living in an urban area, then you don't have as much access to the mall. And um, but you have access you have, to everything else. You have access to everything else, which is at at twenty four seven. But yeah, you. I think you you do shop a bit differently. For I mean, for me, I live in the city. We have you know. A, a doorman you 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 can buy you can buy whatever you want online it ships there you can sit it's waiting you don't for have to, you. yeah it's just the convenience is exceptional so um when i lived in manhattan we would have people visit me visit us in the apartment my favorite thing was to show them two stacks of menus this giant stack are the restaurants that will deliver to us this smaller stack these are the restaurants that will deliver 24 hours a day <laughs> it was it was crazy yeah. and, and when you move out of the city that's the first thing you miss is, yeah. wait, I could get pierogi dropped off at my door at 2 in the morning? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it will be a shock to our system at some point. We're trying to hold out as long the as trade-off we can. The trade-off is you just end up with immense amounts of closet space. Like to a, uh, My first apartment was a 400-square-foot studio <laughs> on 17th and 3rd. That literally, if you, the joke was if you wanted to change your mind, you had to step out into yeah. the hallway so you had enough, you had enough room. Yeah. Um, but then now you you end up in the burbs and it's just it's a whole different. It's a series of trade offs that yep. I loved being able. Is to Isn't life? <laughs> I, I guess it really. Yeah. I guess it really is. So let me ask you about another trade off, um, which a mutual friend asked me to ask you. Okay. Um, what research of yours are you especially proud of, and and whether or not you nailed the call, uh, or a particularly contrary call yeah. you had made. What what sort of piece of research really can you look back and say that was a really great piece of uh, thinking? Called the bottom in home prices, which we were right on, which was great. Um, so March 2012 put out a piece saying home prices are bottoming now, and they did, and the recovery started. So we nailed that call. Um, did you get a lot of pushback from that? Got a lot of pushback from it. Um, yeah, home prices are not going to rise. They haven't fallen enough. Why would they be stabilizing in this environment? Um, What's your answer to that? What did you say to people? That you had um, you had a buyer that um, you had a seller who was highly motivated, motivated and you had, a, <laughs> you, had a, you had a buyer who was also very motivated. So they were able to find that market clearing price, um, which meant a lot of pain, but that's been found. And we're now in a situation where inventory is low. We were looking at early 2012. Went from 12 months to, what, yeah. five months of... Uh... And it went pretty fast. So it seemed like we were kind of primed for um, some stabilization in home prices. Now, did we call for 10% appreciation in 2013? No, we were looking for something a little bit lower. But for 2012, just timing that turn, we were we were right. And um, we were front of the game. And I remember I went on Bloomberg Surveillance. I went on Tom Keen's show the day we published that note. 
And I look back at that, and you know, Tom made a big, big deal out of it, rightfully so. As he does. At, you know, home prices are bottoming. Michelle Meyer calls the bottom in home prices. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable about that. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what if we're wrong? <laughs> and I tried to like pull back a bit. Um, and he, uh, he, knowing Tom, he won't let you. He won't let you, and he still remembers it. And now he still references that. So I feel really proud about that. So now let me ask you the contrary of that. What what sort of research piece do you wish? You could take back that you never hit the publish button on. Uh, I would say it was a piece on labor force participation. Let's say 2011 or so. Right well, um, now, just for those listeners who aren't as wonky as oh, right. as the rest of them, how many people are actively in the labor force? Meaning, uh, a person who is of employment age, mm-hmm. uh, but decides I'm I'm not working. I'm not looking for work. I'm just I'm completely withdrawing for the labor force. Either I'm going back to school or I'm dropping um, out of labor force to to raise a child or do something, but I'm not an active participant Mm -hmm. in the labor force. That peaked in the late 90s, didn't it? Um, it did. So right before the 2001 recession, it, 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 the participation rate peaked, and it's been on a. It was on like a gradual downward shift. It had some some cyclicality around the 2001 recession, but then it, when this recession hit, it it Boom. fell like it just collapsed. And my view at the time was it fell too fast, and that there's room for cyclical advancement, and we'd be able to see a rebound in the participation rate. I don't think I appreciate enough how much demographics were playing a role. Um, so we wrote a piece, you know, let the labor force be with you, arguing that the participation rate was going to pick up, and that would—that's a clever title. Yeah, you have. To, that's one thing about Wall Street economists: you have to have good titles. Um, and uh, arguing the participation rate would would pick up, it creates some stickiness to the unemployment rate, and that was not the right call. And in fact, the participation what year was that? rate can, that was around 2011. Now, hasn't it begun to stabilize? It did recently? really stabilize until last year, so 13. there was further downside, and the unemployment rate fell faster than what we were predicting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and the odd odd notation of the labor force participation rate is as you have more people coming back into the labor force looking for work, you actually end up seeing mm-hmm. an improving economy raises mm-hmm. unemployment rate. Uh, describe that. I know a lot of people are perplexed yeah. by that. So the um, participation rate matters because it tells you how many people are out there looking. So even if you have um, you know, a stronger economy, if that healthier job growth encourages people to come back in the labor force, it makes it appear as though the unemployment rate is actually more elevated than it is. Um, now, if the participation rate falls, fewer people are looking for work, uh, and of those looking for work, some of which are unemployed looking for work, obviously, the, the unemployment rate has downside bias. So it's not just, and I, I think I talked around it a little bit, but the, 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 the clear answer is that the unemployment rate is not just influenced by the number of unemployed workers. It's influenced by the number of people looking for a job. So you can sometimes perversely have a rising unemployment rate because the economy, the job market is actually getting better. It, it's more. It's it's hard to see it actually rise when the economy is improving, but it's more that it's sticky. Mm-hmm. So last uh, last question, because I know you have to get out of here, and it's already uh, late in the day. Um, this is so much fun. <laughs> what is what is your? So let's talk about yeah. what is your what's your favorite part of the job, and mm-hmm. um, what changes do you see coming for the role of economists on Wall Street? Mm. That's. That's a tricky one. Um, favorite part of the job, I think, um, the amount of adrenaline I have while doing the job. So it's 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 fast paced. It's fun. It's constant. 
Um, you're in demand. People want to talk to you. They want to understand what you're thinking. Um, and that's 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 really that's that that pumps you up. So I'm excited to go to work. I feel um, I feel alive. I'm in the office. It's it's great. No matter how tired I might be. So being on the trading floor, being in, involved in the markets, and being um, able to have conversations with exceptionally smart people is 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 wonderful. Um, so I love that. I love that about the job. Um, I really enjoy the media aspect too. I like public speaking. I like. I enjoy being on TV. I enjoy being on the radio. I enjoy being able to communicate my views to the public and and hearing the feedback. That's really fun. You know, not everybody agrees, and I and and I'm okay with that. And I want to hear where there's a difference of views, and I like the debate. I think it's I think it's healthy, and I think it's exciting. Um, where is the industry going for economists on Wall Street? Well, I think you could argue that in general, the industry has shrunk, <laughs> and um, all of Wall Street, all has of Wall shrunk, Street has so. shrunk. So clearly, the opportunities mm-hmm. for economists on Wall Street have shrunk as well. Um, I think one of the big questions that everybody's thinking is how do you, you know, how do you monetize research? Research is extremely important, um, but if you're in, in a cost-cutting environment, um, you know, how do you, how do you? How do you make it as valuable as you can? So I think we always have to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind is that you know, at the end of the day, if you're a Wall Street economist, do you have to produce something that's going to be important and going to be relevant for your clients, um, both of internal and external that, clients? That they're willing to pay something for. They're willing for. to pay something for. Michelle, this has been an absolute delight. Uh, I've, we've been speaking to Michelle Meyer. She is uh, the chief economist of Worldwide uh, Bank America, uh, Merrill <laughs> you Lynch. You keep giving me promotions, I do that. Barry. As the show goes on, you get... So what is your exact title? Deputy... It's deputy head of U.S. Economics at okay. Bank of America, And you Merrill work directly Lynch. with uh, Ethan Harris, who's the chief, who is the chief he is economist. The, uh, he's the co-head of Global Economics. So the developed economics go. team reports into him. And if somebody... Now, most of your stuff is behind a firewall. If someone wanted to find your work, how would they, how would they find it? Well, Bank of America is a very large organization, so the good news is that a lot of people do bank with us or have some exposure to to Bank of America. And if you do, um, you can get access to our research on the wealth management I get stuff from you guys every day showing up in my my inbox. Um, And through Bloomberg and through... You know other types of blogs like yourself, <laughs> you can get uh, you can get information. So it's out there. We've been speaking with Michelle Meyer of Bank America Merrill Lynch. If you've enjoyed this podcast, um, look an inch higher or an inch lower on iTunes, and you'll see all the rest of our uh, podcasts. We're up to thirty something, almost forty podcasts. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or my blog at Ritholtz.com. You could follow me at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.